Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is Mortgage Lending Mastery. Get the knowledge you need from America's Mortgage Mentor. With more than 30 years of experience and over $1 billion in lifetime fundings, you'll learn to take your mortgage practice to new heights. Certified Mortgage Planner and CEO of KineticSparkConsulting.com. Here is Jennifer Duplessis. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Mortgage Lending Mastery. I am so excited to talk today um, to our guest because this is very timely information. And in fact, we're recording it on January 3rd and releasing it almost immediately. So um, very, very timely information. You'll want to um, not do the, listen to this podcast in the car. You want to sit and you want to take lots and lots of notes, as I've already done, um, listening to our wonderful guest, who is Jabron Nicholas, who is the CEO and founder of this um, CMPS Institute, which is Certified Mortgage Planning Specialist Institute. The designation that I have talked about for a couple of years on this podcast, actually. So, Jabron, thank you so much for taking time. I know it's been really tough getting all of this information gathered um, to be able to talk to us today. Thank you. Thank you, Jen. I appreciate it. I'm excited about uh, our time together today. Okay. So, well, me too. And so what we're going to be talking about today is the 2018 Tax Cut and Jobs Act that was finally passed. And you and I have been talking for a couple months just saying, hey, where, are we, where do we stand with all this? I want to get this information out really timely. And finally, they, they passed everything. And thank God you, you pulled it all together for us. So what, what a blessing and what an honor we have here today with you. So there are seven changes in the tax laws that impact lending. Um, well, maybe six. One of them is something that can impact us as certified mortgage planners. So if you're not a certified mortgage planner, it may not have much of an impact, and that's the 521 or the 529 plans. But let's get right into it, Jabron, and you know, help us understand why it's important that we need to know these changes, how we might be able to um, you know, get the word out and, and differentiate ourselves, which you and I will probably both talk about. Um, but more importantly, what are these tax changes and why do we need to know about them? So can we just walk through those and then I'll ask you those other questions again. Sure, absolutely. Again, I appreciate uh, the opportunity to share today. You know, I think the, the main reason why these changes are important for us to know about is because people count on us. In fact, Fannie Mae recently conducted a survey and they were asking homeowners where they get most of their mortgage information from. And the majority of homeowners responded that the best source of information is realtors and mortgage originators. I mean, they, they look to their lender for advice and for information. And I think a lot of lenders underestimate the impact that they have on a borrower's life. I mean, think about this. We do mortgages every single day of our life. And so to us, it's kind of like second nature. And mm -hmm. at times it's, it's boring, it's cumbersome. I mean, we have all these adjectives we use to describe it. But for a borrower, it's the largest debt of their life, and they're looking to you for guidance, for advice. So I think it's important that you are able to shed some light on, you know, where this strategy 
fits in with their overall situation. And that's why I think it's so important is because borrowers are counting on you. Let's make sure to give them good information, not bad information. And let's make sure to, uh, you know, understand our industry. And, and, and so I think I'm, I'm very proud to be part of what you're doing with this podcast because it's really elevating uh, the industry in, in a way that's giving originators the information they need to get to the next level, and I'm, I'm excited to spend some time with you about that topic. Excellent. And you know this has been something that's been on my mind for years and years because I, I know we haven't determined it, but I tell everyone I'm, I'm at least – in the top 20 of one of the first 20 people to become a CMPS. <laughs> I hope my number's right. But, um, so I've been an advocate of this, you know, this uh, higher level of education to be able to edu-sell our clients rather than just simply quote rates. So um, really super important. Okay, so let's go to number one. What was the first, cha- what's one of the first changes that happened and how it impacts us as lenders? Well, well, the first change that happened is the tax brackets changed. Um, it didn't change in a way that made them more simple. It's just a new kind of complicated. So uh, everyone talks <laughs> about simplifying the tax code. Uh, it's a lot easier said than done. The tax code was not simplified with this tax law, so it's not more simple than it was. It's just different. It's a different kind of complicated. And so what happened was the tax brackets changed. They went down a little bit. So before the range was between 10% was the lowest and the highest was uh, 39%, 39.6 on a federal income tax bracket scale. And now the, the range is 10% to 37%. So there's still one, two, three, four, there's still seven tax brackets. So that didn't change. But the uh, your tax bracket probably went down. For example, if you're making $200,000 a year, um, married filing a joint tax return in 2017, your highest tax bracket was 28%, and now it's 24%. So your, your tax bracket probably went down a little bit versus where it was last year. But because the system is so complicated, that doesn't mean that the taxes you pay actually will go down next year. It just means that the tax bracket's went down. So the taxes you pay are a function of several things. It's a function of the tax bracket, but then it's also a function of the deductions you take and, you know, how you, whether you itemize, whether you don't itemize, these types of things. And so that's really where the second thing comes into play. The standard deduction went up. So the tax brackets went down, which is a good Mm -hmm. thing. The standard deduction went up, which could be a good thing or bad thing, depending on your situation. And so what the standard deduction is, is the the IRS says, okay, if you want to itemize your tax deductions, you can do that. And you can claim things like mortgage interest and charitable contributions and property taxes. And you can claim all these things and deduct them against your income taxes before you pay taxes. Or you can just take the standard deduction. And so the standard deduction went up from 12,000 to 24,000 for married mm-hmm. couples. And so doubled. what this means is, is they doubled, right? And for, even for single tax, for individuals, it, it, it doubled as well to 12,000. Um, so what this means is that a lot fewer people will choose to itemize their tax deductions in 2018. And um, which makes the mortgage deduction, as an example, kind of a moot point for a lot of homeowners. So. Mm-hmm. Whereas the mortgage deduction was a big deal for a lot of people because they were itemizing on their tax returns, 
that's no longer going to be a big deal for most people because it doesn't even matter to them. They're not taking itemized deductions. They're just going to claim the standard deduction. Right. So what this means for an originator is when you're dealing with first-time home buyers, you're used to probably including your sales presentation, your sales pitch, the benefits of home ownership and the tax deductibility of mortgage interest and your after-tax cost of owning a home is less than the after-tax cost of uh, renting. That is no longer the case for most people. And so I would just kind of eliminate that from your sales presentation. Don't even talk about the tax benefits of home ownership when you're talking to a first-time home buyer. It doesn't because it doesn't really matter to them. It, they're not going to have a tax benefit when they buy a house because they're not going to itemize. Their tax situation is not going to change all that much from where it is as a renter. Mm-hmm. And so I would just sort of uh, not talk about the tax benefits of home ownership for first-time home buyers because there really is none. And I would focus on other things like the wealth creation benefits of home ownership. Like what would happen if you bought a home and the home went up in value by 2 or 3% a year for the next five mm-hmm. or seven years, what would your wealth situation going to look like in seven years versus what it looks like if you were to rent? And so in our CMPS uh, membership, we give people access to a, a buy versus rent calculator, and it allows you to sort of type in in one column what it looks like if, if, if you rent, and then column two, what it looks like if you buy a house, and then it extrapolates that over five or seven years, whatever your holding period is, and it shows you here's the bottom line impact if you buy versus the bottom line impact if you were to rent over that same time period. So you can completely ignore the tax benefit and just focus on the, the wealth creation opportunities associated with home ownership. And, of course, there's other benefits like you, know, you pick your school district where you want your kids and the pride of ownership and all these other things that go into home ownership. Right. And I would sort of upsell those benefits and sort of downplay the tax benefit because of this new tax law. Okay, so let me stop you there. I have a couple of questions. I just want some clarification on, and I'm sure that people are, are thinking this, and hopefully I get to – hopefully I can think for all the people that are listening in on this. Um, and I know that the conversion, uh, the opposite of that is become a CMPS and you'll get your questions answered. But, um, but just so that I have clarity on it, I know you're talking, you're saying, uh, you know, sort of avoid the, the uh, tax benefit conversation about with a first-time homebuyer. Are you talking about a first-time homebuyer specifically because your thought is that they're buying their first home and their interest deduction for, uh, on their mortgage for the year would be less than $12,000 so it doesn't have a play? Or are you talking about it just because you're assuming that someone who already owns a home has had a com- conversation with someone who has explained to them what tax benefits are, you know, truly walk through the tax benefits of home ownership. Yeah, I would say my, my statement was really in, in regard to the former, not the latter. So okay. in other words, okay. it, it's, it's because if somebody's buying a two, let's say they're buying a two hundred thousand, let's say they have a two hundred thousand dollar mortgage, mm-hmm. and they're paying four percent interest on that two hundred thousand yeah. dollar mortgage, that's only eight thousand dollars a year in mortgage interest. So they're going to want to take the twelve, yeah, just take the twelve, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. So okay. even if their property taxes are another four or five thousand, right? You know, it, the difference to them in what they pay in taxes this year as a homeowner is going to be pretty much nothing compared to what they paid last year 
in taxes. There's going to be no difference, in other words. Right. Yeah, so, so that begs the question. So if they're paying, um, you know, $8,000 in um, interest and they have uh, $5,000 worth of property tax, they now are at $12,000 or at $13,000. So they can choose to itemize to whoop de do get the thirteen, or they'll just take the standard deduction of twelve. Right. So in the case of a first-time homebuyer, because you know I live in Washington, D.C., our first-time homebuyer is buying six fifty. Mine is at least six hundred fifty thousand dollar home. They're going to have more than twelve thousand dollars in taxes for their, you know, whether they're a first time homebuyer or not. They're going to have, I'm sorry, not taxes, but um, well, yeah, property taxes and a combination of interest. They're going to have more than twelve thousand. Are you going to see that people are going to um, attempt to do itemization to be able to get more than that, or is it capped at twelve? Period. End of story. That's it. That's all you can get. Because there was conversation about capping your interest right off at $20,000 a year, period, end of story. Um, so are we still, do we still have like an $8,000 buffer in here that we can play with? Well, it, it has, there is no cap on the mortgage interest. In other words, um, whatever the old proposals were, they, they didn't end up happening. So Okay, I didn't know that, so this is why I'm calling you. Yeah, <laughs> right. So what ended up happening, what ended up happening is they could, you, as, a, as a taxpayer, you can either choose the, Standard deduction of yep. if you're single is twelve thousand, if you're married is twenty four, mm-hmm. or you can choose to itemize. And if right. you choose to itemize, the only way that would make sense for you, that choice, the only way for that choice to make sense to itemize, is if your itemized deductions were greater than your standard deduction. So, in the case of a first time home buyer buying a six hundred, you know, it's a six hundred thousand dollar mortgage. Mm-hmm. Let's say six hundred thousand dollar mortgage at four percent. It's $24,000 a year in mortgage interest and tack on another $10,000 in property taxes. Well, now you're at $34,000. Yeah, it makes sense for that person to itemize now. Right. If, if that itemization, different. so if that itemization puts them into a different tax bracket, would you agree? So if, if we had that extra 10000 taken off, um, you know, you go through the itemization to have the extra $10,000 um, reduced from your income so you can be in a lower tax bracket. If it doesn't take you into a lower tax bracket, it might not be worth it. Well, it still would be worth it, right? Because you, you, now your deductions are 34 in our example instead of 24 as a married couple or 12 as an individual. So mm-hmm. your, de- your deductions, if you itemize, will still be higher, which means that your tax that you pay will be lower uh, if you itemize. Uh, right, just on the dollar amount. Tax. Yeah, on the yeah, dollar amount. Tax. I was thinking the tax bracket, the the mar- the um, actual um, tax brackets, the marginal tax brackets as well, because it right. could put you. Yeah. Okay. Great. It, it Thank you, you for clarifying that. Um, so the second question in there, before we move on to number three, is the you know buy versus own, right? Or buy rent versus own, buy versus rent. You know, one of the one of the things that I've always used, and I and I know you're talking about not really discussing the benefits of of that pers- you know that home ownership. What is your feeling on how we would propose? You know, um, what I've been doing currently. Let's just use a simple example. Someone pays a thousand dollars a month, and they're in the twenty eight percent tax bracket, right? They're effectively paying one thousand two hundred and eighty dollars a month for a mortgage equivalent, right? We've used a lot of these terms over the past umpteen years of effective interest rates and, um, you know, what you're effectively paying. Is that no longer part of the discussion as well? Because I find that's a real aha moment for my clients when they say, oh, you mean so effectively I am paying 1200 because I'm not getting a tax deduction. Yeah, that's 
that's kind of what we're talking about. So if they're yeah. if they're not okay. going to have any benefit by itemizing, then that should not be part of the conversation because okay. th- there really is no benefit there. But yep. if they if they are going to be itemizing, um, then that that could be part of the conversation. But even so, the impact of itemizing will be somewhat limited. In other words, they're already getting a $24,000 if they're married, they're already getting a $24,000 standard deduction. Mm-hmm. And in our scenario earlier, if they're itemized are all the way up to 34, well, it's only really a like a one third difference in their tax deductions. So it's not gonna make that huge of an impact on their taxes, whereas before it would have. Okay. Okay. So I just, yeah, I want to make sure, I mean, yeah, because if it's not going to have an impact whatsoever, there's no sense saying you have an effective interest rate or effective yeah. payment. Okay. All right. That sounds good. Okay. So we have a change in the marginal um, tax brackets. We have a change in um, the standard deduction. What's number three? What's the third thing that happened? Well, the third thing that happened is the uh, limitation on state and local taxes. So before, uh, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, we were able to deduct against our federal income taxes all the taxes that we pay on a state or local level. So if we live in a city that has a city income tax, or if we live in a state that has a state income tax, or a property tax, all of these taxes that we pay on a you know, city, county, state level, they're all deductible against our federal income when we pay federal income taxes. So now it's still the same where we can still deduct it. However, we're capped at 10,000. So if you live in a higher cost state, like uh, you know, California has a very high income tax right. rate, or you know, New York, New Jersey, some of these states have very high income tax rates. Uh, so you now you have a very large income tax. And let's say you also live in a house that has a very high property tax. Well, you're gonna exceed the $10,000 limit you know, in no time. So your property right. tax is a limit to be 10,000 not even counting your income taxes. So mm-hmm. um, so this means that if you own a house with a large property tax bill, then your effective after-tax cost of home ownership just went up because yeah. you no longer get a tax benefit for paying those higher property taxes. So the cost of owning a, a house in a, in a higher-priced market just went up dramatically and it might cause, you know, from a, um, a property price and value perspective, it might cause those property values to either take a pause uh, from the high appreciation rates that they've been experiencing lately, mm, yeah. or mm-hmm. they might even come down a little bit to make the home ownership in those markets to be a little bit more affordable. Yeah, so that'll be interesting where that, that money will be, def- that income for the state right, and for the localities, it would be interesting where that income is now going to come from if they are forced to, because, you know, the economy slows down or whatnot, if they're forced to um, lower those taxes, it would be interesting to see where they make that up, you know, and yeah, what will happen. Yeah, I mean, they might not lower the taxes either, and because we're, the homeowner is not really going to see an impact until 2019, you know, property prices might not come down until like 2019 because that's yeah. when it's going to hit everybody's wallet, right? So mm-hmm. like this is all in the abstract right now for most people because it doesn't really impact their 2017 taxes. It only impacts 
their 2018 taxes, which won't really be paid until 2019, or you won't file your taxes until 2019, and that's where you'll see the hit. Yeah, yeah, and everyone will, oh, yeah, it'll be, and at, right at the same time that rates will be higher. <laughs> right? Yeah, that's true. Then it'll be all at the same time. Um, okay, so, uh, yeah, pretty interesting fact there, too, and, and I think a lot of people don't think about that because, again, and we need to preface, too, and I, I know that you had said this recently that I thought was really good, is that, you know, we're not giving tax advice, we need to be very clear about that. We're just providing useful information to help our clients. Anything that you could get in a newspaper, as you mentioned, right? So there's nothing illegal about providing useful information, but giving tax advice is something that we want to make sure that we draw the line on and refer out to our partners to do. Yeah, I, as a loan originator, I would try to get very comfortable saying things like, this may impact you, or you may mm -hmm. want to talk to the CPA about this information, or Use the word may and might a lot, but don't use the word will or do or shall a lot because that's really where you cross the line into giving stuff. This is how it will impact you. Don't say this is how it will impact your taxes. This is how it might impact your taxes, and please talk to a CPA for details. So right. I would sort of, you know, give them the useful information just like they were reading an article on Kiplinger's or, you know, CNN or wherever they read their articles, but... Uh, don't cross the line into giving them specific advice about their specific situation as far as taxes right. are concerned. Okay. All right. Got it. Yeah. And I and I think that you know is important that we that we brought that up too. It's you know just to make sure that we're not putting ourselves in a really bad situation. Okay. Sure. So that's number three. What's number four? Number four is kind of like a a, a bonus, I would say, um, because it's just not something that we think about a lot as originators, but we don't live on an island isolated, you know, from everything else. Well, our product is a financial product. And mm -hmm. when people consume this financial product, it should be done in a way that sort of complements the other financial products and services that they're consuming simultaneously. So it should be done in the context of their overall situation. And that's really where point number four comes into play. There was a change that was made to the college savings plan uh, you know, when you save money for a child's college education, these plans, a lot of them are, are called 529 plans. It's the type of a college savings vehicle that people use. And so I have one for my two kids, and, you know, a lot of people save their money in a 529 plan. You're allowed to get your money from, you know, relatives, grandparents can contribute money to their grandkids' fund, and, like, a lot of people are using and taking advantage of these 529 plans. Well, it used to be, prior to this tax law, that you could only use the money in those accounts for a college education, which makes right. sense, the college savings plan. Well, now the whole thing pretty much changed, and you can use the money in the account for any type of education, like elementary school education, private education, religious school education. So it's really, instead of a college savings plan, it's an education savings plan. And what this does is it just gives loan originators another talking point to talk to their customers about. So if you're talking to somebody about, you know, the 30-year mortgage versus a 15-year mortgage and, the, you know, $500 or $600 a month in savings, and what if they flip that into a, into a 529 plan? And here's an article that explains what 529 plans are. And, by the way, here's a financial planner you should speak with about that. It just gives right. you a totally different uh, sort of experience of working with you versus the experience that customer would get by calling an internet lender or doing something online where they're not going to get that sort of personalized attention 
and um, you know we're, what you're doing is you're you're trying to place the mortgage in the context of their overall situation, and mm-hmm. you're doing it in such a way you're not giving them financial advice, but you're saying here's something you might want to consider, and you can even use these funds for private education. So if you're dealing with a client who is sending their kids to a private school, you know chances are they're you know dipping into their savings account for that for those tuition bills or their um, their uh, checking account. And so what the new law allows you to do is you can use up to $10,000 a year per child to pay for private education uh, or supplemental education during their elementary school years. And so that's a really great benefit. And, you know, chances are nobody's talking to them about this. And if you're the one pointing it out to them and saying, here's something you might find useful, it just gives them another reason to want to work with you versus your competition. Right, right. Excellent. And just so I can I'd be clear on this, if I had a client that was saying, look, I, you know, I'm, I work um, and I make, you know, $20 an hour and I want to go to school, can, can I fund my own education or does it have to be for a child or a grandchild? I, I, believe, it can, I believe it can fund your own education as well. Um, yeah, that might be something yeah. neat too, you know, just to help them pay off bills and, you know, if there's, if that's part of their plan, again, we're CMPSs. So as a result, we're not just asking, you know, what do you want your payment to be? And here's your quote. We're asking these questions. So if there is a plan for the person to go to school, you know, this is why I can't buy a bigger house because I want to save money to go to school. These are options that we have available to us to start bringing up those topics. Sure. Okay. So all right, number, that was four, right? So number five, I love this one <laughs> because, you know, I'm yeah, you're, you're oh, I love this one. <laughs> yeah, this is a good one. This is a good one. So uh, it just became uh, better for real estate investors to make money in real estate. So what happened was um, real estate income when you own rental properties is typically taxed at your ordinary income tax rate. So the the old system was, you know, you make, let's say you make $10,000 in real estate rental income and you're in a you know, 28% tax bracket, you're going to pay 28% of that in income taxes. You, you're out $2,800. That's your tax bill for that real estate income. Well, under, right. the new system, under the new system, what happens is you still have to pay taxes at your ordinary income tax rate, but number one, the tax rate just went down. So somebody in a 28% bracket is now in a 24% bracket, so that's good. But more importantly, for real estate investors, um, you get a, a deduction of up to 20% of whatever your real estate income is becomes a deduction against your other income. So let's say in our example where you're making $10,000 in real estate rental income, 20% of $10,000 is $2,000. So the government gives you, okay, an extra $2,000 tax deduction now mm-hmm. that you didn't have last year. Now you have it. And so... Um, this is under the passive, uh, under the passive uh, deduction rules that they just, um, they just created for, passive, for, for pass-through income. And so what happens is, in our example earlier, where the $10,000 of income, now you have a tax deduction of $2,000, which means that you only have to pay taxes on $8,000 of that money, and your tax bill, instead of being $2,800, is only $1,920 at the 24% tax rate. So... Right. The investor who was making 10000 a year and paying 2800 in taxes on that money 
now only has to pay 1900 a year on that, on that money, on that same money. Right. Okay. So let me ask you a couple quick questions on this. First of all, um, was there any change in the capital gains tax for investors? No. There was discussion about that. So it still remains at what it was, I think it was 35. Well, the capital I do 1031 tax, exchanges, so I don't know what it is. <laughs> I guess I, I don't yeah, want to pay tax. The capital gains tax did change a little bit, but not significantly. So in other words, what happened was the old capital gains tax rates were 0% if you're in the first two income brackets, 15% capital gains tax rate if you're in the middle bracket, and a 20% capital gains if you're in the highest bracket. And it's still pretty much the same thing. So it's 0% if you're in the first two brackets. Mm-hmm. It's 15% if you're in the middle bracket. And then if your income, depending on if you're married or not, is greater than something like 450000 a year, then your capital gains tax is in the 20% range. So, um, so still pretty much the same structure there. That didn't really change. Okay. You mentioned passive income. These are, are passive deductions. This is for someone who is, um, has a job and is not a professional real estate investor. What kind of changes there in this particular tax item for the active investor as far as be- having this deduction? I believe it's the same thing, except a lot of act- active investors um, used to pay a personal income taxes and not corporate income taxes based on the structure of their corporation. So if right. they were investing using an S-corp or a C-corp and how they file their taxes, all of that determines whether they pay personal or business income taxes. So for an investor who pays business income taxes, their situation just changed dramatically as well because the business income tax rate went down to something like, I think it's like 22, 23% as a flat tax on, on, on business um, mm-hmm. income. So, if you're an investor who is paying business income taxes, then your tax rate probably just went down as well. But most investors that you and I deal with are paying taxes on their investment income under their ordinary income tax bracket. That's why there's this, this benefit of the 20% deduction that we talked about. Right. Okay. All right. Just wanted clarification on that. Sounds good. Um, all right, so the next one, uh, and this is, this is really, really an important one, too, because I think there's still a lot of myths out there about acquisition and indebtedness and what it is and to understand it. Um, so, uh, and I do have some follow-up questions on this as well. So let's talk about the acquisition indebtedness list I and mean, limit. I don't know why I said list. <laughs> limit. I'm looking at the word limit. Yes, absolutely. So what happened is if... You closed on a mortgage in 2017. Let's say you closed on a loan in November 1st, 2017. At that time, you were allowed to deduct the interest on up to a million dollars of mortgage balance if that mortgage balance was used to buy, build, or improve the house. And the limit was a million dollars. Now, let's say you closed on a mortgage in November 1st of 2018. It's the same thing. You can deduct the interest on your mortgage if it was used to buy, build, or improve the house. But instead of your limit being a million, it's only 750. So the limit on mortgage interest deductibility went down from a million down to 750. And so acquisition indebtedness is is mortgage balance that was used to buy, build, or improve a house. So if I use the first lien to buy, build, or improve the house. 
If I use mm-hmm. a HELOC to buy, build, or improve a house, if I use a closed-end second, it doesn't really matter what kind of a mortgage I used, whether it was an arm or a fixed rate or a HELOC or a first lien, as long as it was used to buy, build, or improve the house, it's deductible up to a limit of 750 So right. a lot of people say, well, I can't deduct the interest on home equity loan. That's not true. Right. You can deduct the interest on a home equity loan or a home equity line of credit as long as the money was used to buy, build, or improve the house. Right. Now, if it was not used, to buy, build, or improve the house, then it's not deductible, whether it was right. a first lien or a second lien Subsequent. or a huge. So, right. So if, if it's a cash-out mortgage and it's a first lien mortgage and I didn't use the money to buy, build, or improve the house, then I can't deduct the interest. If it's a HELOC and I took it out and I didn't use the money to buy, build, or improve the house, I can't deduct the interest. And so this is the distinction that we need to make. It's not what we call it in our industry, whether it's a home equity loan or not. It's what the IRS calls it as acquisition indebtedness. So if it was used, bottom line, if it was used to buy, build, or improve the house, the interest is deductible up to 750 as your aggregate total. So in other words, it could be a $300,000 mortgage and a $450,000 HELOC. It could be a $450,000 Mortgage and a three hundred thousand dollars. It's an aggregate total of seven fifty if the money was used to buy, build, or improve the house. Not only on your primary home, but also on a vacation home. So if I took out a three hundred thousand dollar mortgage on a primary home, and I used that money to buy that primary home, that's an acquisition mortgage. Then if I turn around and take another four hundred fifty thousand dollar mortgage on a vacation home, well, that's also an acquisition mortgage on my vacation home, and my aggregate total limit is seven fifty. So it's 750 total on vacation and primary homes, aggregate total, and aggregate total in terms of different types of mortgage balances. The total gotcha. limit is 750. Okay, yeah, so, so it's per person. <laughs> it's not by, I have seven properties all, I mean, uh, yeah, that I have seven properties and each one of them has a $700,000 loan. This is 750 all total per the person. Okay, just making sure we got clarification on that. Yeah. Okay. All right, good. And you know, it's really interesting. Do you know, I I heard something about the percentage of homeowners has been all over the news, and I think it's 94% of all homeowners have have mortgages less than 750. Um, It might be 96% or something where there's just a very small section of people that have mortgages that are over 750, between that 750 and a million, because the million already in the past, uh, didn't get the deduction anyway. So we're only talking about, you know, a very, very small percentage of people nationally who are affected by this. And even if you are, I ran the numbers, we're talking about $2,000, maybe $3,000 um, in in lost uh, interest deduction, but who cares because you're probably going to use standard anyway. Right. You know, maybe. Maybe you'll itemize. We'll see. Okay. Um, so let me see if there was anything else that I wanted to ask you there, because um, I know there were some questions about that when we were listening, you know, into your uh, conference call, me, you know, a few minutes ago. But I think that's I think that's really it. The key there is using our investor, our um, interest, not interest rate, uh, internal rate of return calculators that we have available at CMPS to really help the investors understand what their internal rate of return is going to be now as a result of this. Okay. Yeah, for, uh, for investors, right, because the, the rules yeah. are different for investors, remember? So investors, you know, you can still deduct 
the interest, like if you have a million dollar mortgage on your investment property, you can deduct the interest on the entire million dollars. And if you have $10 million mortgages, that's still deductible for you because it's not home acquisition indebtedness. Now it's a, a business expense for you, right? So, so basically right. it's deductible as, a, as interest against your business income, which is your rental income. Mm-hmm. And that didn't really, that didn't really change. Um, the only thing that changed on the mortgage deduction was the, for people who are deducting their mortgage on their primary and vacation homes. And that's the 750 right. limit. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. And I wanted to make sure everybody understood that. So, um, okay. That sounds good. So let's get on to the last one. Number seven, which is the, um, or we just talked about acquisition indebtedness, didn't we? What's the, oh, number the seven is gift tax. The home equity indebtedness also, and, right. then, the, uh, and then the gift tax. So, the home yep. equity indebtedness, it used to be that um, if you took out a mortgage, whether it was a first lien or a second lien or a HELOC or, you know, fixed rate loan, if you took out the money and you didn't use it for home improvements, you can still deduct the interest on up to $100,000 of that interest. That was called mm-hmm. home equity indebtedness. Yep. That is no longer the case. That went away entirely. So, yeah. so in the past, like in 2017 and before that, you were able to deduct the interest on up to $100,000 of mortgage balances that were not used for home improvement. That was called the home equity indebtedness rule. Right. Um, but now that completely went away with the new tax law. And the only type of mortgage interest that you can deduct is acquisition indebtedness, which is what we talked about earlier. So that's change number right. seven. Right. And then change number eight is the gift tax. Yep. So, okay. So let's talk about that. I think this is um, exciting, except that most of us aren't, don't have $11.2 million. So I, I know you're going to talk about this, but it's, it's yeah. still exciting. <laughs> right? It is. It is. I mean, yeah. when people like, are using gift money for a down payment, a lot of them are concerned with the gift tax. And they say, well, I don't want to gift money to my son or daughter or my relative or whoever, because then the government's going to find out about it and they're going to charge me taxes on that money. Right. And so a couple of things to be aware of, and, and we do have an article in the CMPS site that explains everything that we talked about today. There's articles about that, but then there's also an article about the gift tax, which we call it the gift tax myth. There really is no gift tax for most people. Right. And so the way that works is the person receiving the gift never, ever has to pay a tax. Okay, so if I give you money, Jen, no matter how much money I give you, you never will have to pay a tax on that money because you're the recipient of the gift. Right. So if I'm giving you money to help with your down payment, you don't have to pay a tax on that. That's, that's always been the case, and that's still the case now. However, the person giving the gift sometimes might have to pay a gift tax, and that's where this resistance comes into play. When mm-hmm. somebody is giving money to a friend or relative to buy a house, they don't want to have to you know, report it to the government and have to pay gift taxes on that money. The person giving the gift, might have to pay a gift tax. Well, they don't have to pay a gift tax under two circumstances. There's two ways that they don't have to pay a gift tax. Now, if they did have to pay a gift tax, it's pretty steep. It's like 45% is the gift tax rate, and and it's it's pretty expensive. So that's why people are scared of it. But there's two ways where you don't have to pay that gift tax. The first way is if you use what's called the annual exclusion. Um, Mm -hmm. And this is up to $14,000 a year that you can give to anybody. And as long as it's $14,000 or less every year, 
you don't have to pay a gift tax on it. So you can give somebody 14,000 in 2017, January 1st, 2018 rolls around, you give them another 14,000, that's fine. And then January 1st of 2019, you can give another 14,000 and that's fine. And there's no gift tax. You don't have to report it to the government. You don't have to pay gift taxes. It's kind of a moot point. It doesn't really matter at that point. It's just you're giving them 14,000 and there are no reporting requirements, no tax requirements. That's right, and just to be one. clear, yeah, and just to be clear so that people that don't understand this is that if you you and I wanted to each give $14,000 to our child, we could. If you and I each wanted to give $14,000 to our second child, we could. Correct. So for a married yeah. couple who wants to give, mm-hmm. you know, money to their children, it's realistically it's like 28000 right, because it's yeah. 14 from mom, 14 from dad. Uh, and then if you know, the in-laws can get involved, then 14 from the in-law mom and 14 from the in-law dad. So that's that's like $56,000 mm-hmm. right there, and you, and you haven't even, you know, exceeded your annual exclusion yet. So, yeah, that's, it's, it's per person per year. Right. Okay. So that's number one. Uh, second that's way that they one. do not have to pay taxes. The second way that you don't have to pay gift taxes is something called the lifetime exclusion. And this is related somewhat to the estate tax. So when somebody dies, there's something called an estate tax or inheritance tax or death tax. I mean, there's all these names for it, but it's the same thing. And so if I die and my heirs inherit my property or my wealth, whatever it is, up to a certain portion of that is shielded from estate tax. It's called the estate tax exclusion. Mm-hmm. And in 2017, that number was $5.49 million for for individual. Uh, I can My heirs can inherit up to $5.5 million, basically, and they don't have to pay any gift or, or they don't have to pay any estate tax. So I can either allow them to inherit my money tax-free, or I can give them my money during my lifetime tax-free. And that's where the gift tax comes into play. So I can give them up to $5.5 million throughout my lifetime, and when I dip into my lifetime exclusion, I knock out my gift tax. They don't have to pay any gift tax on the money I've given them, up to $5.5 million, but it just reduces my estate tax exclusion. So basically, Mm -hmm. if I give them a million dollars, well, now my exclusion when I die is not $5.5 million anymore. It's only $4.5 million, and I can only give Mm -hmm. my heirs $4.5 million when I die without having an estate tax. Right. For most people... Most people who have a net worth of $5.5 million or less, there's no gift tax at all because they just have to basically dip into their lifetime exclusion in order to knock out their gift tax. And, 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 so, yeah. and so if you're a married couple, several years ago, the government says, okay, well, we're going to allow this thing called portability, and now you can port over your $5.5 million to your spouse. And so now collectively together, you've got, you know, almost $11 million that you can right. exclude from from gift and estate taxes. And so for most married couples who have a net worth of less than $11 million, there really was no gift tax at all, even in 2017. Well, now the new tax law happened and the limit just went up. It's, it's no longer $11 million for a married couple, it's $22 million. So basically right. doubled. <laughs> right. so I don't know where that came it, from. Uh, yeah. I, I really, I'm, I, I'm like, well, why did they put that? Why? I mean, if anything, you'd think they'd lower it. I mean, why would they increase it like that? Because really, the general public doesn't have that kind of money, so it just makes it an. It continues to make it a non, a non issue for most people. 
Yeah, for most people, it's not going to matter. But I think the main reason they did it is there's a lot of small businesses, a lot of, you know, family-owned businesses that when you, you do an appraisal on the value of the business or the value of the farm or the value of whatever that family-owned operation is, it's going to come in the, you know, the 5 to $15 million range. And so they said, you know what, let's just kind of steer clear of all these small businesses and just make the ultra-wealthy people pay taxes. And, and so that's why they increased the limit up to 20 Twenty-two yeah. million for a married couple, okay. or eleven million for an individual. Yeah, so that would that would make a lot of sense. Okay, so um, one quick question I also ha- that I had was um, going back to the HELOC and the acquisition indebtedness. And um, so let's say I, you know, I have first mortgage of four hundred thousand, and on uh, my primary residence, and I want to take out a home equity line to purchase an investment property or purchase a second home. So I just, I, just for clarification, I'm doing the home equity line to buy, build, or improve another house, not the current residence. Deductible or not deductible? I don't think it not, is. But I'm just, not, okay. not deductible. Okay. I didn't, I didn't think it was. I, I wanted to confirm because I just had a client call me the other day and I was like, oh gosh, if you had called me a couple days ago, it would have been so much better. (laughs) It would have been so much better. And then just for clarification, I just want to make sure everybody remembers that mortgage insurance is no longer tax deductible, regardless of your income or anything like that. There's nothing, you know, on the books that's saying it's coming back out again. I haven't seen anything. Um, Just making sure that everyone's aware of that. Since we are talking about tax deductible items, we now know that mortgage insurance is no longer tax deductible at all. Correct. Okay. I just I want to make sure that I got that. All right. Last quick question because we're coming up on the hour and I know you've got a hard break here. Um, how, how would you go out and tell the world about this in our space? You know, tell our space about this. You know, hey, I'm going to have a lunch and learn, a latte and learn, waffles and, you know, wisdom. Uh, You know, I'm going to have a class here. Um, I'm going to teach a class. What are are some ways that we need, we could and should get this out to realtors and buyers? Great question, John. And I think it's really mainly three opportunities. I think the first opportunity is if you're talking to somebody who falls into one of these scenarios or they ask you a question about it, Instead of trying to, like, research everything and spend a bunch of time, you know, digging and doing Internet searches on these topics, we have a library of content in the CMPS site. We have articles for everything, basically. So there's an article about the gift tax. There's an article about the mortgage deduction. There's an article about the, you know, the, um, the capital gains when you sell your house. And all these things are covered in our content. And so basically it's a matter of just going to our website, clicking a button and sending it to the customer. So that's the first thing is when you're having individual conversations with people and you find that they would benefit from learning about any of these topics, you just basically log into our website and you can send them an article about any of these topics, an individual conversation. And um, that's the first way of doing it, individual conversations. And I wouldn't sort of overload them with a bunch of information. I would just give them what they're looking for. They ask you a question about the gift just tax. Just the one item. Article. Yeah. Yeah, that's an article about the gift tax, right? Gotcha. So mm-hmm. that's the first thing I would do. The second way of sharing the information is we just did a really nice presentation. It's about 30 or 40 minutes of updates on the new tax law. It's a PowerPoint presentation, and it's something that CMPS members can download from the website and just go do a lunch and learn 30 minutes and knock out all eight of these topics. Like, here's the eight updates. Here's how it impacts you, Mr. and Mrs. Realtor. 
here's the eight updates, here's how it impacts you, Mr. and Mrs. Financial Planner, or CPA, right? So it's a non-CE presentation. It's just like a 30-minute lunch and learn, a great way for you to sort of get the information out there to groups of referral partners. Um, I wouldn't recommend really doing this for consumers. I mean, it's a lot of information for consumers, and, you know, it's just not necessary. A realtor, you know, would benefit from this information, right? So do a presentation with 5, 10, 15, 20 realtors in a room, give them an update, and we've got a PowerPoint presentation for you for that. That's the second opportunity. The third opportunity is a CE class. Now, we're approved Mm -hmm. in 24 states as a licensed real estate school, and we're approved all across the country for CPA and financial planner CFP continuing education credit. So once you become CMPS certified, we give you a three-hour class that you can teach to realtors about everything that has to do with mortgage and real estate taxation. What happens when an investor sells a house? How do you do a 1031 exchange? What happens when you sell your primary home? How does the capital gains tax work? How does the mortgage deduction work? And I think, Jen, you mentioned that you were even going to be teaching one of these classes in a couple of weeks here. Yeah, and next so week. We just, yeah, that's great. I mean, we just updated the content uh, for, for the mortgage and real estate taxation, CE class. And this is for those of you who want to take it a step further and actually become a CE instructor. You would become the approved instructor under our school teaching our classes, and that's also available for those of you who want to become CMPS certified and become an approved instructor. So those are really the three ways that I would share this information. Yep. Awesome. And I think it's important to get out, get it out there because, you know, all, it, it's, what's going to happen is just like the gift tax myth that's out there, right? It's going to go, it, it, people are starting to be creating, it, going to begin to create their own myths and thoughts about these things. And perhaps those that are on the fence will hop back on the other side thinking, well, it's not worth doing it because now I don't get a tax deduction. You know, so it's our job to get this word out. Right. You know, and I, I even think a whole series of um, videos might even be good too to realtors. So there's all kinds of things to be able to do. Um, well, listen, Jabron, thank you for bringing your wealth, wealth, wealth of knowledge to us. I really appreciate it. Bringing it all in. Um, you know, I've been personally, I've been just waiting with bated breath for you to put this together for me <laughs> because there's just so much information out in the marketplace. And I, and I started it all started running together. And I say, wait a minute, is this the tax? Is that the tax? Because you heard so many things. So I love that you just brought it all in so that each of us can go out there and start making a difference in each of our practices. So thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us again today because this is the second time we've had you on Mortgage Lending Mastery. Awesome. Well, I appreciate it, Jen. Thank you. And I really believe in what you're doing with this podcast and uh, got a great community of listeners there. So I hope this information has been useful to them. And uh, thanks again for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. You're welcome. Thank you. So everybody, listen, if you love this, share it. Share it with everybody. Um, get some. Get everyone into a room and listen to this podcast. You know, get your sales team into the room. And um, you know, if you have interest in becoming a CMPS, uh, you know, you can always reach uh, Jabron at Jabron. Can I give your email out? Yes, absolutely. Okay, Jabron at cmpsinstitute.org. Um, I know it by heart. <laughs> and uh, uh, Get it out to him uh, or go on cmpsinstitute.org and find out about how you can become a CMPS, um, your whole team. There's, there's an enterprise uh, discount, and, and you know, Jabron will even come to your office and 
do all the training for you if that's what you want to do. So thank you so much. Um, please don't forget to write a review, and we'll catch you next time on Mortgage Lending Mastery. Thank you for listening to Mortgage Lending Mastery. If you liked what you heard, please drop by iTunes and leave a comment or rating. Get more free email updates, transcripts, selling and education resources, and Jen's upcoming speaking events. Just visit our website at kineticsparkconsulting.com.